This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, November 4th, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. The Tea Party is coming to Washington with historic wins in the U.S. House and big gains in the U.S. Senate. The Tea Party movement has made a strong statement. But what did that statement say exactly? And what pitfalls await those who want, as many have tried in the past, to change Washington? John Samples is director of the Cato Institute Center for Representative Government and author of The Struggle to Limit Government. He comments. One of the immediate responses that I heard from people I know in following up on this election saying, oh, it's a big win for Republicans was, well, look at all the incumbents who were not kicked out of office. And uh, I guess once you leave aside people who lost in primaries and things like that, maybe the incumbency rate is actually not that high. But how do you read the incumbency rate this time around uh, versus previous midterm elections? Well, well, I mean, compared to the, you have to go back to the 19th century to make this look like it was a poor uh, turnover. Uh, something we're in a period where, and have been for most of the century, last century, where there's not a lot of turnover in the House. Uh, going into this election in the House, there was talk of about a hundred seats being, or a little more than 100 seats being competitive, where the challenger could win. Uh, as we know, it's something a little over 60 actually did change hands uh, in terms of party. Uh, and by the terms of elections, particularly in the post-World War II era, that's just a huge turnover. Uh, and you did have comp- competition beyond that. But that does mean that since we have 435 members of the House— uh, that well over 300 seats are not considered competitive, even though they're being run. I think, you know, the Barney Frank seat is very much of an indication of what we're talking about here. It was thought that he was in trouble, but in fact, he won handily. Uh, there's a lot of seats like that out there, even on a big uh, night of change like last night. In terms of getting a better snapshot of who makes up the Tea Party in the United States, mm-hmm. People point to Prop 19 going down in flames, but my rejoinder to that has been, well, didn't all the big Democrats win their races in uh, California? That seems to at least give some lie to the idea that uh, Tea Partiers are this uh, arch-conservative group. Right. Well, as you know, some of the polling that uh, our Cato colleagues have been doing suggests that the Tea Party uh, is divided among, between conservatives and libertarians, both suspicious of government, the federal government, for different reasons. Uh, I think that it's going to take a while to figure out the Tea Party effect. Initially, people are going to be looking at the high-profile losses, uh, uh, the, um, the loss in Nevada, the loss, probable loss in Alaska, the very close loss in Colorado— uh, there may be continuing focus on O'Donnell in Delaware. But as time goes on, I think we'll also hear more about uh, uh, people that uh, won and were considered to be uh, Tea Party candidates, like uh, Justin Amash in the House in the 3rd District of Michigan. We'll f- and we'll find, uh, I think, more Tea Party influence than we expect. And the other thing to keep in mind is the Tea Party made a big difference in this election because it was a level of enthusiasm, a level of organization, and a level of perception, I think, that uh, really drove uh, toward the last night. It 
we have to come back to the fact that this, uh, the Obama administration got turned around in the summer of 2009 at those town hall meetings that were the incipient Tea Party. That, that was a moment that looked like we were headed into the third stage of the New Deal and a 50% of GDP government. The Tea Party, as a grassroots movement, changed that, and I think we're going to see uh, more of the effects of it last night and not all of it negative. President Obama asked his supporters upon being elected, I need you to hold my feet to the fire. I need you to keep me accountable to what you want. Um, He achieved perhaps a couple of things that, that a lot of his base at least uh, really wanted, universal health care uh, or a push toward that uh, being one of those things, is the Tea Party movement. Uh, can we really say anything with confidence about how they will be expressing themselves in the future now that Republicans have regained the House? A lot of people have said, look, this is a Tea Party movement is uh, using the Republican Party currently as a vehicle, but, uh, you know, I... I'm still a little dubious on that idea. Well, I think the real question for some months now has been, will the Tea Party, like other third party movements or outside movements, uh, have a lot of strength and dissipate themselves in an election? Ross Perot's statement was actually 1992, and the Reform Party thereafter was uh, of marginal importance. I think the fact that there was a sort of mixed verdict in the sense that some of the candidates uh, lost and and some won and so on may work to prolong the Tea Party in the sense that in to the extent that it is a uh, movement of opposition, uh, it can't be said at this point that it's completely won through that uh, in the way that the anti-war left or, or whatever progressive groups could say of Obama. So there's incentives. There's still work to be done, and that may operate to prolong the life of the Tea Party. Uh, Rand, Rand Paul ended up winning his race fairly decisively by, I believe, 12 points. Um, and he made, in his acceptance speech, uh, his victory speech, he drew a fairly stark uh, polarity between being a society that uh, holds higher the state or the individual. Mm -hmm. And uh, that seemed to be at least him trying to to set a tone. I am here to uh, talk about first principles and and that sort of thing. That's something the Tea Party groups, a lot of them, have have, uh, focused on. What are the pitfalls for somebody like that going to Washington and – and trying to trying to work from first principles. Well, I mean, I think there are two strategies. One is that you enter into the process of bargaining and political struggle and coalitions and all of that. And the temptation is, over time, at some moment you'll be presented with, do I want to accomplish this thing or that thing, which might be fairly minimal. It might be a small tax cut or something. And do I want to do that at the price of uh, voting for something that was uh, I would have opposed during my election? That's and so the sort of uh, you know problem in a sense of dirty hands of making compromises to to bring about changes you hope, which may not turn out to be as big a change as you want. The other prospect is I think uh, you see in people like Tom Coburn is to 
to drive forward uh, an agenda and keep an ideal before the public and to try to educate the public to that ideal. Uh, Rand Paul's father did that in certain ways. His son is going to have a much broader uh, uh, pulpit to make that case to the American people. I have to say I'm not sure right now which one of those uh, directions Rand Paul will take, and it's possible that he may be able to do both. Um, Right now, we don't know, but uh, he has placed himself in a uh, very demanding situation. It'll be interesting to see how he governs after having campaigned pretty well. John Samples is director of the Cato Institute Center for Representative Government and author of The Struggle to Limit Government. You can get your copy at Cato.org.